And welcome to the Dear Bitches Smart Authors Podcast. I'm Sarah Wendell from SmartBitchesTrashyBooks.com. With me is Jane Litt from DearAuthor.com. And this week's podcast is delayed. My deepest apologies. I have been delayed by what I am told has been called Snowtober. We had a snowstorm of about five to six inches of snow where I live in northern New Jersey on Halloween. And since all the trees still had leaves on them, they all came down. It's a hot mess. And some people are still without power, which I find astonishing. But thanks to many, many power crews from Alabama and Mississippi and Florida and all parts south of the Mason-Dixon line, power is being restored, and I finally have time to sit down and edit the podcast, which of course was really not on any energy company's list of priorities. But it was on my list of priorities, so now it's done. Yay! I apologize for the delay. Also, I have to tell you, I think every major weather event is going to have to have a name. If it's not a hurricane with a proper name, then we're going to name it something stupid like Snowtober or Snowmageddon, Snowpocalypse. Any good snowstorm this year, we're going to have to come up with some ridiculous amount of hyperbole to make it a good name. If you have suggestions, let me know, because this is just entirely amusing to me. This podcast, however, is extra, extra awesome. Jane and I got on the phone with Sarah Mayberry from Australia, and this interview is so much fun. Hence, it's an hour long. It is wonderful. She talks about her books, the authors that she loves, she talks about being a romance writer and also being a soap opera writer, and she attempts an American accent. So get ready. And here we go. So, first of all, thank you staying, for staying up so late to talk to us. It's fine. I, I usually don't go to bed till about now anyway, so. Well, good. now you're going to start getting giddy and inappropriate, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'll do my best. Okay, good. Um, I always, I, I actually do tell myself that, you know, even if today is really bad, the world can't end today because it's already tomorrow in Australia. <laughs> We we would get you a message somehow. Yeah, really bad crap's going to happen today, you guys. Just go back to bed. <laughs> New Zealand book last night, or a book set in New Zealand, and um, they said in the text of the book um, a way of saying things that is something like, uh, you're hot as, or you're sexy as. Is that an Australian saying too? Oh, like, you know, he's a hot as kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. 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 We would say something like that. So it's not hot as something. It's just hot as. Yeah. Like, I guess the leaving the comparison up to. <laughs> I, I've never really thought about it, but yeah, he's. You're hot as Murray Wiggle. You're, yeah. Well, as my husband says, hotter than a bike seat in summer. <laughs> <laughs> I almost just spit yogurt out. <laughs> That's funny. So, so not laziness that you can't finish the comparison. It's um, 
kind of graciousness allowing the other person to fill in the blank to fill in the blank it is it's yeah did you i suppose you guys did you guys ever have a game show called blankety blanks i imagine not Uh (laughs) it was one of those game shows where they would say i came home the other night and my wife was cleaning blank off the kitchen table and um people had to fill in the blank and if you got the most popular response you got good points Oh, so that's like the family feud here. Yeah, it's like the family feud. Although here in America, I do have to say, we like things explained to us in minute and somewhat amazing detail. <laughs> Did you see the recent family feud uh, viral uh, video that went around? It was the question was name the top like 10 things or whatever the list is of things that can be spread. <laughs> and, like the number. The first response was pot or a joint, and that was like the sixth response. And then um, the next response was collection plate, and that dropped in under the joint. <laughs> it was legs one of the answer? I <laughs> no, I, I went straight there as well. Uh, that was exactly where my brain went. Yeah, or the Vegemite, one or the other. But yeah. <laughs> okay, I will be honest with you. I have tried Vegemite. How do you eat that? It's like little, it's, it's so incredibly salty. Yeah. It's a breakfast food. It is. And you know what? You don't ever put a lot on you. You, the secret is to have really like the the most low fiber white bread toasted Mm -hmm. with lots and lots of butter. And then you just kind of wave the Vegemite over the toast. (laughs) You just sort of sprinkle it like fairy dust. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Just, just like the kind of like a, just a kind of like smoke of Vegemite over the top of the toast. And, um, and then it's quite palatable. But uh, look, to be honest, um, we have a jar in the cupboard and it's probably been there two years. It doesn't, you don't go through a lot of it. <laughs> oh my gosh, somebody's going to revoke your Australian passport. So <laughs> is a um, survival food. Is it? Well, I mean, it, does, it lasts forever. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. It'll be there with the cockroaches for sure. <laughs> so when the world does end... In Australia yes. or in the U.S., there will be Vegemite and cockroaches for those who survive. And Twinkies, apparently. So have you thought about writing post-apocalyptic fiction with Vegemite and cockroaches? <laughs> you know well, what? I think there need to be some post-apocalyptic Harlequin Presents. <laughs> well, Sarah doesn't write Harlequin Presents, though. She writes um, Harlequin Super Romances. That's right. That's right. I beg your or, pardon. One of the things I wish for Harlequin Super Romance, though, is that it did have more open door bedroom scenes and not because I'm salacious, although maybe you want to term me that, but because I do think that in modern day romances, uh, sex is an important part of a person's relationship. Oh, uh, look, I very, very firmly agree with that. And I mean, I I also think that the, it's also the traditional payoff for a romance. I mean, all the tension and you can, I mean, maybe it's different in a love-inspired. I haven't read one of those. But all of the tension in a romance novel typically is about whether they're going to do it or not. And it's it's kind of like getting someone to the top of the roller coaster and then just going, okay, you can get out now. <laughs> Suddenly you're on the ground and they say, you had a great ride. You really enjoyed it. And I, I find myself, particularly if somebody, an author's done the tension really, really well, I feel really pissed off <laughs> if they shut the bedroom door. So what are you working on right now? Um, I am about halfway through um, a book for Super Romance um, 
that I'm calling the grief book. Um, oh God. <laughs> Ladies and, and gentlemen, Sarah Mayberry is ripping your heart out. Get ready. <laughs> it's um it's gonna it's kind of really interesting because it's uh well I hope it will be, but um the heroine is um her best friend was married to him and she dies in the prologue. And so the sort of first part of the book is the two of them sharing their grief with each other. And, um, and then sort of as they sort of get to know each other as people and not as with this other person in the middle of them, if you know what I mean, um, it becomes something else. But then of course there's all this kind of guilt attached to it, particularly for him and, but also for her as well as, you know, a little bit like, you know, oh, I saw what my friend had and now I'm just kind of stepping into her shoes and um, and obviously there's there's a couple of kids and all that sort of stuff. But I'm, um, as I said, I'm sort of 30,000 words into that at the moment and, um, yeah, it's good. Well, that's cruising altitude, so you're doing just fine. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. <laughs> and the great thing about it is I'm stealing um, – I'm stealing my friend's profession for it. She's um she's a ring designer, a wedding ring designer, and she made my wedding ring. That's and cool. She um I went to her studio actually just um yesterday and had a look at um the way they manufacture the rings and everything. It was amazing, man. Like they actually um they were just starting a ring when I got there, like from absolute scratch. So they had these um little strips of metal and they had a, a crucible that they were heating up and making a, an alloy and pouring into a mold. It was just, it's like deeply Whoa. medieval and incredibly cool. And I'm actually quite excited <laughs> to get back to my book so I can put all this detail in now and bore the absolute tits of readers. <laughs> you know, ridiculous details about faceted gems and, you know, metallurgy and <laughs> okay i think that is so cool and i seriously cannot wait to read that that is so interesting i don't think i've read a a, a ring designer hero or heroine before i'm sure there are because every profession has pretty much been explored but that i haven't read that and that's so interesting it is a really it is really interesting and she's one of the few um i think probably the few in australia even but definitely in melbourne she's the one of the only um bespoke um, ring designer who makes a living off it. You know, she's she's really really busy because um, she does beautiful things, of course. So, so didn't you, Sarah, write maybe so it was another New Zealand or Australian author write about a female gemologist or someone who was searching i mean it was karina bliss who did that no uh, you know kelly hunter did one about um she had to go to central australia to find the gems for um a, a showpiece she was trying to make for some competition yes, know that rings yes. about and the boy or the boy the hero went with her yeah yeah Yes. And I can't remember, he was sort of a driver stroke protection or something right. like that. Can't so they had to it. head for Uluru and look for, look for a rock? Opals and whatnot, yeah. Cool. Yeah. 
So what do you think is one of the things that readers most like about Australia and is setting in Australia? Because I've noticed now that as books that are set in Australia and also New Zealand, and I know that they're two separate countries and I don't mean to just lump you together like you're the same. Um, <laughs> I know that happens and it's sort of like in North and South Dakota get lumped together and they get really pissed off about that too. Um, yeah, Australians don't mind so much, but New Zealanders get really snaky about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's more of you than there are of them. <laughs> so so many books now are set in Australia and in New Zealand. And I've noticed that the language is not changing as much as I think it used to, that the, that the custom terms and the, the local way of speaking and some of the, some of the, um, the language hasn't been changing as much, which I love because I like knowing about colloquial language. Do you think that that's true or am, am I misreading? You know, I think it very much depends on where the books are edited um, I suspect that a lot of the books that come through the English or the London office um, get a different treatment than, than certainly my books do coming through Toronto. Um, so, you know, there's obviously just the issue with, with spelling and there's a lot of commonality between English and Australian English in terms of, um, you know, like we call the, um, the trunk of the car a boot and we call the front of the car a bonnet. A bonnet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and all that kind of stuff, and so and so did the English. So um, I suspect that some of those things don't get fiddled with as much as they do when I. I mean, like I, I don't even get mom. Um, I, sorry, I can't have mum. I get mom, um, which sometimes is frustrating. But I, I don't understand that. I promise you, on behalf of America, I can handle a you. The the letter U is not going to like lead me to jump out the window if it's color or if it's mum or mummy. It's okay. I can handle it. It's just a U. I think I think that the the rationale is that um, sometimes it throws the reader out of the text, and um, and I've seen enough comments on judgings and whatever else about strange spellings and colloquial language and stuff to make me think that there are for some readers that that is what happens. Um, but then equally, you know, I get heaps of letters from people saying, you're an Australian writer and you sh- you're writing Australian stories and they should have Australian spelling and Australian references in them and, you know, be proud of your heritage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can understand that. But Australians cuss a lot, right? Oh, yeah. But that um, doesn't make it into the book. <laughs> that doesn't make it into your books. No, um... No, it doesn't. Well, you know, there's there's quite a few shits in there. Um, oh, that's good. But I'm I don't think I'm ever going to get a fuck in there, and um, that's that's very much. I mean, I look if you're ever going to do it, you'd get it in a blaze. And I know some blazes have have that, but um, I was never. I, I was sort of um, always careful, I guess, to not go there. I not a member of the fuck club. That's really yeah. disappointing. <laughs> So yeah. what's something that you think American readers might misunderstand about Australia? Have you ever come up against a, a sort of a misconception that a lot of people have about Australia? Um, uh, well, look, I mean, ridiculous things like that they think that there are kangaroos and things like that everywhere. Um, I mean, you don't have a kangaroo? Yeah. <laughs> it's not like your purse. You just sort of hand it your wallet and it puts it in the pocket and comes on out to the grocery with you. With that, that would be great. Instead of you could just take your kangaroo to school instead of a backpack. That'd be but, um, awesome. <laughs> uh, no, we don't. And I'm trying to think of, well, you know, I look, I've, I've had um, in, you know, traveling through America, I have people saying, oh, you're from Australia. Wow. You speak good English. 
um, but mm, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I, I. It's sort of hard for me to answer that question. I think it's probably easier for you guys to to tell me what your conceptions of Australia are. You know what I mean? Well, I have a, a strange love with. Oh, I have a very strange and deep appreciation and love for Australia because you gave me the wiggles, which often enabled me to shower, and. Um, I've seen the Wiggles live a couple of times. And I also have a friend who is Australian. She comes from um, the Sunshine Coast uh, and her, her family lives in a small town right on the beach. And she married an American and now lives in Atlanta. So I hear her talking about on just on Facebook, answering questions about Australia. And there, at one point I know on the Wiggles videos, there was one character who wore a giant hat and had little bits of cork hanging off the brim of the hat. And for the life of me, I could not figure out what that was about. That's the one thing I don't understand why you're hanging bits of cork off your hat. Because there's lots of flies. And, that's um, what that is. Yeah. That's to keep the flies away from your face. You know how, um, yeah. Like how horses swish their tails around. Right. It's it's the kind of the the hat equivalent of that, and I mean that there's a, a slang or a, a colloquial term for the the um, Australian salute, which is you know if you're at a barbecue or whatever, everybody's waving their hands around their face. <laughs> oh, well, you know I know you all tie your kangaroos down. Sport, yes, sport, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Rolf Harris. <laughs> I love Rolf Harris. On the right or left side of the road. Uh, we we drive on the left, so the and, opposite to you guys. And the driver is on the right side of the car, right? That's right. Yep. And your seasons yep. are reversed, so you're about to have summer. We are perilously close to summer. Yes. Now, I asked this question of Stephanie Lawrence, and she said this was not a problem for her, but she's writing historicals, and she used to live in England. So I want to ask you the same question: Do you ever write and put, and and you're setting the book um, in Australia? Do you ever? move the characters out of Australia and then have to think, wait, what season is it in which month? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I have one I've written. I mean, I've written a couple of, I have wrote three blazers that were set in LA and I've been, I've gone to Paris and I've written another one that was in um, uh, Long Island. So yeah, I do. Uh, oh, I, Long Island is very exotic. <laughs> it was Kate May. So actually that's crazy, oh, isn't Kate it? Kate May is South Jersey. That's awesome. I didn't know you wrote a book set in Kate May. Where's my pen? Where's my pen? Oh, it's, got... it's an anthology. Uh, it's a little short with um uh Casey Michaels. Oh and... hell yeah. All right, and get that right, get that pen. Write that down. <laughs> Where's my pen? Now Sarah Mayberry's like shit, I told her about it. Crap. <laughs> <laughs> Cape May. All right, so Jane. How long does it take you to write a book? Um I try to write 3,000 words a day. That's my my deal I have with myself to be a professional person and uh, still have a life. Um, so if I if I can if I do that like a, a dedicated professional person, <laughs> I will have you know 15,000 words a week. And then you know you can do the mass on the word count. I mean a super at the moment comes in at 75. Um, mine tend to be long uh, I mean I think almost all of mine have, have been over 80 at some point when I finished them I've had to sort of rip through them and my editor has then gone through and torn some more out of it um I I'm a big plotter so I do a lot of uh planning in advance for my books so there's not a big rewriting stage so usually once I've finished um I go back through it 
a couple of times I do what I call a, a red pen edit where I print it out and I go through it with a red pen and just try and clean it all up as much as I can and um, and then you know I send it into my editor so you know in a perfect world I, I suppose I could write one in five to six weeks but that's not the way it works so it's usually okay. more a couple of months yeah yeah I like to give myself you know in schedule wise I think I probably give myself 10 to 12 weeks and I um and I you know because things go wrong I I you know I go I go off my plan sometimes or um I I get part way through the book and I think God what what crack was I smoking when I came up with this idea and I have to go back and <laughs> re rethink the whole thing I mean the one that I've got out at the moment um all they need I just I started that book four times uh it it was just absolutely did my head in until I finally sort of sat down and um, had a good talking to with myself and sorted myself out. But um, I, 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 I started that book thinking that I wanted to do this story about this uptight rich guy and this warm-hearted hippie chick. And I realised sort of on my fourth attempt to write the first couple of chapters that I had come up with a situation and not real people and ah. that's what I had to sort of go, okay, let's just throw all that out. And I think the only thing I really kept was the setting <laughs> and the characters' names. Do you uh, want to write single titles in the future versus uh, the category books? Yes, I would love to write a single title. Um, I did write a single title um, not last year, the year before, uh, in first person, and I shopped it around to a couple of publishers and um, the American publisher said they weren't interested because it had an Australian, it was set in Australia and had an Australian heroine. And the Australian publisher told me that um, it wasn't as interesting as they thought it would be <laughs> when I pitched it to them. But in hindsight, I, it, you know, I can see all the problems with it and I will possibly try and fix it. But um, I just don't have the time to do that now. And I, I, have, um, I have made a schedule for myself for the next 12 months and, and, and part of that schedule is putting aside some months to do a single title attempt, another one. So. Will it be in the first person again or are you going to go a different route? It'll be third person. Um, yeah, that's, look, I mean, that's what I do with super romance and, you know, that ain't broke, why fix it? <laughs> So how many super romances do you write uh, a year? What's your co contract for? Probably somewhere between maybe three and four is what I end up producing. I, I, I've sort of the last couple of years I've done an anthology, a little novella as well. So I end up writing um, maybe three books and a novella in a year. Um, I'm about to sign a contract uh, for five books, but I won't do five books in a year. Uh, boldly going to try and write four super romances next year. We'll see how that turns out. Oh, yay. So are you intrigued at all by the self-publishing movement? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, I find me an author who isn't really. <laughs> it's, um, you know, you, you look at that and you, you think, I mean, we, I don't think there's probably any great secret, we get 6% of the recommended retail price. And uh, when you work out what that is per book, it's... Um, 
you know, Ooh. I'm not I'm not buying a sheep station. Do you want a sheep station? You know what? I um I am quite partial to a lamb roast, but I don't require <laughs> a, whole, a whole sheep station. No, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> um, but yes, I mean the the point I was making is that um it would be fantastic to, for example, be able to write um two books a year and live comfortably and not feel that constant pressure, you know, and, you know, I mean, I'm also, I'm writing the scripts as well. And it just, it would be, it would be nice to um, get a decent return on the amount of effort that you put in really. I mean, you never, ever, I never stop working. I'm always thinking about the book. I'm thinking about the next book. I'm thinking about what my next contract will be. It's, it's, I mean, and I think that's just part of being a writer that you, you're always kind of, there's some part of your brain that's always stealing ideas from the ether or what people are saying in the seat next to you or something you've seen in the distance or whatever. But it would be it would be nice to sort of feel that there was one thing that you didn't have to worry about, I guess. And um, so in that respect, I think that self-publishing is um, very enticing and, and attractive, but also I hugely 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 value my editor and I would never even think about putting a piece of writing out that hadn't been um through that editorial process in in some shape or form and I think being able to find finding that for yourself um in a sort of freelance self-publishing world is is going to be a voyage of discovery for for people uh certainly for me if I choose to do it I am I am exploring the options I have a um a novella that I've half written. It's not even a novella. I don't know. It's going to be about forty thousand words by the time it's finished. Um, and I and I want to try and publish that myself next year. But I'm giving myself plenty of time to try and get that right as well. I want to, I want to have it edited, and I want to have the time to go through it and get it formatted properly and get a good cover and do all the things that make it as professional, hopefully, as my other books. So if you self-publish your own novella. Are you going to make it about a third more expensive for Americans since most books for you are about a third to a half of a half more expensive for us than Gosh, for us? That's so tempting. Wouldn't that be tempting? You know what, America? It's eight ninety nine. Suck it. <laughs> I, I will. Um, that would be nice, wouldn't it? But no. And you know what? Be. I would totally understand. <laughs> I would. Um, it would be really nice to make it the same price for um, everybody. <laughs> what? What you? What? Oh my God! Scandal. <laughs> can we talk can about how much we um, we pay for cars over here compared to you? My this is a source of constant um, irritation to my husband. But we pay like three times as much for a car as you guys do. Oh my God! Really? Yeah. Because of the import tax. You know what? I we actually can't work it out. I nobody will ever be straight with you. They say that it's about shipping. Uh, differences in currency. Um... That's not possible because I live near Port Elizabeth in New Jersey where all the cars come in. This is where all the cars come off giant cargo ships and are unloaded. And if you drive over, it looks like a sea of parked cars mm. and they're all covered with, um, with white plastic to keep them from getting scratched and dinged up. It's like peeling off a giant fruit roll up. All the cars are shrink wrapped. And they get on trucks and they drive all over the East Coast. That's the main. Cause so our our cars are imported, a lot of them. And, you know, we don't have the most gloriously friendly import taxes either. Although I'm sure they're lower than yours because that's what America does. We tax lowly and then complain that we don't have enough money. Um, <laughs> 
I'm amazed that you pay two to three times for a car. Good God. Oh, well, you look, I mean, you can see what we pay for books. Only recently have they dropped dramatically, and that's because there's been so much competition from Amazon and um, Book Depository and et cetera. But, you know, until reasonably recently, this Lisa Kleepis book that I have in my hand <laughs> that um, you guys, it says on the back, seven ninety nine for you and in Canada, nine ninety nine. We probably would have paid 22 maybe $25 for that. Holy shit, really? It's a paperback, yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Bloody hell. And those trade-sized paperbacks were getting up towards 30 bucks. Oh, my God. I feel like I need to come to Australia with a suitcase full of books and set up a table (laughs) on the street. Be like, $10, come and see me. Well, the reason I asked if it was taxed was when I was in Korea, they explained that uh, and Korea has a lot more auto manufacturing than Australia, obviously. But the import tax on a non-Korean vehicle was enormous. And so what um, car, uh, what non-Korean car manufacturers did to get their uh, piece of the pie was to license the designs of their vehicles to uh, Korean manufacturers. So my husband would notice that, hey, this looks like the Lexus blah, blah, blah. And the person would be like, yes, we imported that design and we... Um, but it's it's made under the you know Hyundai or whatever. Daewoo. So that was so. If you saw someone driving around with an actual Mercedes, that meant that they paid probably three to four times the U.S. cost of that because of the import tax, and then you knew that they were really really wealthy and that they had a really really big stick shift. Right. <laughs> So I didn't know if it was import tax. Uh, oh, look, it, I think I, it probably is partly that. I, I, I think there's that. And they also have a, there's a luxury car tax that they introduced here as well, just because they could um, for a car that's more than 70000 But, you know, like a $70,000 car in America would be pretty right up there. Oh, yeah, that's a high cost. That's a, that's a, that's a pretty high-end car. That's, it's an entry-level BMW or Mercedes over here. Um, the lot because you know our economy is also in the shitter, and there's other the car ads that I've seen during um, American football and baseball because the World Series is going on, so there's a lot of baseball on television. The car commercials that I see, um, instead of seeing the higher end models like Lexus or Cadillac, I see people uh, car manufacturers advertising that this car is just under twenty thousand dollars, but here's all the things that it comes with. So mm-hmm. it's like it's like twenty thousand American dollars is now this mark of that's what a good car could cost if you go with us and, and it has power windows and power doors and maybe it has a cassette player. Lucky you. <laughs> a cassette player. <laughs> my old car had a cassette player. I think my current car is it's used. I think my current car might have a cassette player. And my kids are like, what's that? <laughs> well, honey, it's a magical, let's magical thing. Let's talk about Sarah's books so that we get a little promotion for her. Yes, let's promote the shit out of her. Hi, Sarah. We're here to promote the shit out of you. This, by the way, this is going to be the NC-17 podcast because, you know, when I read erotica, I, I, I won't say cock. I say chicken. And, uh, you know, now we're just dropping the F-bomb. Australia, man, you're a bad influence. Yeah. All right. So, which I have a question, though. Do And I know you get this question a lot. Of the books that you've written, do you have a favorite or one that you think of and you go, hell yeah, I kicked ass on that one? Oh, you know what? I don't get asked that a lot. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure everybody, I'm sure all writers say, oh, it's like asking me to pick one of my children. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I have heard that before. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
You know and what? By the way, on Anderson Cooper, apparently there were mothers admitting to having favorites, so be that mother. <laughs> oh, I love when television talk shows do that. I I think I'm I really like Anything for You, which was my third blaze. Love that book. And I also it's really loved Below the Belt, which was my boxing book. And I, I that one really sticks in my mind for me because that was one of it was a book where I made lots of writing I, learnings I had lots of writing learnings if that, that's very good English isn't it um, while I was <laughs> while I was writing that book I you I, done learned some stuff with that there book I did yeah I I had a few sort of um writing epiphanies if you will and I kind of went oh okay okay that's how you do that okay and um and I sort of felt like yeah I kind of became a little bit more aware of craft and things with that book. So that's, that's got a fond spot. So what's a fan favorite and what do you think is the least uh, favorite book of your fans? Yeah, that was one of my <laughs> questions too. Um, I can tell you what my least favorite book is. It's below the belt. Um, um, you know, as I've said, I think to you, Jane, in an email once, um, who knew that other women didn't want to read about a woman being punched in the face for a living? Um, apparently they don't. And um, so that book was, that that book is, of all of my books, the absolute lowest uh, sales, like by gazillion miles. Um, um, the most popular books, I think it's probably a little bit of a tie between her best friend and um, anything for you. And I mean, obviously it's the best friends. They're both best friend stories and, um, and people just love that. They love the best friends. I will say you do friends to lovers with a great deal of skill and it's not an easy, uh, it's not an easy type of plot to write. Yeah. Well, I do enjoy it. In fact, (laughs) my single title attempt is going to be another one. (laughs) So. I am. I'm gonna. I've I've done the one where she was in love with him for ages, and I've done the one where he was in love with her for ages. And this this next one, I want to be that that they are genuinely both friends, and it kind of hasn't really occurred to them before. And um, and I want something to sort of reset their friendship, so they kind of go, "Hey, look at you." What do you think and- it'll be that resets their friendship, or can you not give it away yet? Yeah, I can. I'm happy to talk about it. If somebody wants to steal my idea, they can go right ahead. But um, it's um, he's he's going to have a a cancer scare. And oh, I was just going to say, is he going to lose a ball? I haven't actually hundred percent decided on what the the near death experience will be. At the moment, I'm toying with a um a brain tumor actually. Um, and just because there's some sort of interesting things that come with that, and um. So yeah, and just these, and and she's gonna give up work for a while to look after him, and you know, it, as they wait for his pathology results, etc. Um, they sort of get to know each other in a different way. Awesome. So fifty-fifty without the um, male best friend bonding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So you have a new book coming out next month. Yep, all they need. And I I wrote to you and said that I had some problems with it, but that I enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> I think all my emails to authors are, are 
are in that vein. I love, I liked it, but. <laughs> well, I, I think the thing with, um, as I said to you, I think that the, the thing with the book is that I, I bring all my things to the table and put them out there and you bring your experience of the book and your interpretation of the book to the table as well. And then there's this new thing, which is your experience, I guess, that comes out of those two things. And um, and sometimes that's deeply satisfying and sometimes it's frustrating. <laughs> well, I did enjoy it. I don't know, Sarah, have you read it yet? I have not. I suck. Okay. One of the things that I liked about Sarah's new story is that it features a working class family. The heroine is a um, woman who had gone overseas. She met this guy. She fell in love. They got married. She found out he was really well off. He had political ambitions and social climbing ambitions, and he was always uh, criticizing her for not helping him move forward. And over the year, I can't remember exactly how long they're married, but over the years that they were married, he really began to erode her self-confidence, her joy in life, uh, to the point where she was really um, kind of a shell of who she was initially. And eventually she gets the courage and and strength to leave him and she gets divorced and part of the divorce settlement, uh, she gets money and she buys a set of cottages and I'm not sure where it is. Uh, I'm really bad with geography and and really bad with geography I'm not familiar with. So Sarah Mayberry, you can jump in and tell us where it is that she owns these cottages. On the Mornington Peninsula, um, which is, um, so Melbourne is um, in a, a sort of a horseshoe-shaped bay, I guess, and Melbourne, the city, is at the the top of the horseshoe, and uh, the Mornington Peninsula is kind of one of those sides, and it's so it's right down one of those sides. It's about an hour out of the city, and um, it's got beaches and trees, and it's lovely. And it also has a, a dilapidated estate, which used to host some really amazing gardens in Melbourne. The hero is Flynn, and he was a landscape architect. And then his father starts um, showing signs of early Alzheimer's. And so he abandons his dreams, and he has to take over his father's business empire. And they're very well off. So... He uh, understands that this estate is up for sale and he's going to go see it because he has a yen to do more creation and less just wheeling and dealing. So he takes his girlfriend, who he's been living with, out to the coast to stay at Mel's cottage and um, to, to take a look at the property. And there's a prologue and the prologue is a, a a scene at a party where mel is with there with her husband and flynn is there uh doing his rounds uh his social rounds and he says something uh he he's th this is in his thoughts and i really kind of thought that it kind of encapsulated what attracts flynn to mel and then what propels their attraction later maybe sarah maybe you could read it it's the um it's on the one, two, third page. I have to go get it. Hang on a sec. I, I know. I think I know what you're going to say. Actually, <laughs> so they're they're at a society party. It's a hot night. Um, all the men are in black tie, and all the women are in lovely dresses. 
and he's standing with a bunch of his friends and there's this sort of cry from down on the the grass, the lawn, and he and all the rest of the people go to the the terrace uh, balcony and they all look down and there's Mel, the heroine, and she's talking to an an elderly couple and it, it appears that one of the the elderly woman has dropped something into the big bubbling fountain that's in the middle of the lawn and um so which bit am I going to read <laughs> um so the bit that you like Jane is um so this is this is the first description of Mal I guess uh she was easily the tallest woman at the party at least six feet tall with broad shoulders that would put a lot of men to shame her breasts were full and round, her hips curved. As much as Flynn was wary of Owen's naked ambition, he'd always liked the other man's wife. There was something about Mel Hunter that always made him want to smile, maybe because she was often smiling herself. Anyway, she then proceeds to hitch up her skirt and um, climb onto the edge of the fountain and she gives a man her hand so that he's stopping her from falling in and she reaches in and she saves this woman's uh, diamond bracelet from the fountain. And just when she's sort of holding it aloft and saying, yay, look what I've done, the man who's holding her hand slips and she falls into the fountain and um, <laughs> steps up. You know, when she comes up out of the water, her dress is a bit transparent and, you know, people can see her her, her nipples and her pink and white striped underpants and... Um, Everybody's sort of deeply amused, I guess, um, at at her or by her, and then she sort of says a couple of things to make it um, something that that she's part of the joke rather than the joke. And then her um, humiliated husband comes and puts his coat around her and ushers her out of the party. And um, there's a sense that she's been she's in big trouble, I guess, and. Um, and the hero Flynn feels bad for her because he thinks that she was actually really brave and 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 ballsy, I guess. And um, yeah, and that's that's the last time they see each other until the the book starts again in eighteen months' time when when Mel's divorced from her husband. And one of the things I really liked about the story was that uh, Flynn falls for Mel fairly not fairly quickly, but he comes to a realization that he has strong feelings for her, feelings that he had never felt for anyone else. They share a lot of common interests. She loves gardening and the land, and he does too. And she's very close with her family, and he's close with his family. And she's a good listener. But Mel has had a very bad marriage, and she lost herself in a marriage, and and, and she's rediscovering her independence and appreciation of who she is as a person and as much as she's attracted to Flynn and as great of a guy he is she doesn't ever want to get married again and I thought that that was a little different of a twist on the romance um the woman not wanting to get married the woman being commitment phobic and not only was she commitment phobic but she had a really good reason for not wanting to be married again she you know she enjoyed uh, her relationship with Finn and she enjoyed the um the physical benefits of having that relationship with Finn, but she was very scared of being married again. And, you know, statistically speaking, women don't remarry uh, very frequently. And so I felt it had a real ring of authenticity about it. 
And I thought that you did a great job of showing how well Flynn integrated with her family and her family was very working class and something outside, of, I would guess, of his regular social experience. And he seemed to fit in seamlessly there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I sort of figured with, I mean, I, Flynn, Flynn's a good guy, you know. I, I, I do want to write um, a hero who knows what he wants and and he he has been brought up with privilege, et cetera. But I do I do think that character and the way you are to the people around you, you know, a lot of that stuff comes from your parents. And he has fantastic parents and um, you know, they're very, very loving, supportive parents. And I think that that he's a very generous soul. Um and, you know, I sort of figured that, you know, he's a landscape gardener. He would have been working with guys who, you know, do heavy labour for a living a lot. So it's not like he's riding polo ponies around, <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> so when the story opens, the very first chapter, you have Flynn with um, his a longtime girlfriend. He's actually living with her. And they go to Mel's uh, cottages and... It, what was the re? What was the thinking behind having Flynn in a relationship in the beginning? Um, i i wanted I wanted to give him a reason to, I guess, discount Mel as a possibility when they reconnected with each other. I, I wanted to show that he felt that he was emotionally unavailable, and I, I wanted to show that, not just tell it. I, I wanted to. Um, for him to, when that woman, Hayley, um, basically she gets down on her knee and she asks him to marry her and he realises that while he's been kind of doodling around, I guess, with her, but taking comfort from, because um, they've been friends for a long time and, and lovers for a, a relatively short time, he's been sort of taking comfort from this this friendship that's become more in a time when his life is in upheaval but she has always loved him and it's been a lot more for her and he he ends up hurting her and um, he, I think he really takes that to heart and so when he starts finding himself attracted to Mel, one of the things that makes him hold back is this understanding that he's hurt this other woman and that he, he thinks that he's a bad bet um, at the moment. So you love Lisa Claypass? Yep. What are some other the authors that you like? Um, Susan Elizabeth Phillips, um, Ain't She Sweet is one of my top ten. Um, I love Rachel Gibson's C. Jane Score. It's one of my absolute favourite books as well, one of my comfort reads. Um, I love Loretta Chase's historicals, um, Laura Consale, um uh, Laura Lee, I don't know how to say her last name, Laura Lee Girk, is it? I'm very, very, very fond of um, Christian Higgins' Just One of the Guys. I love that book. I love yeah, that book a lot. It's a fantastic book. And, um, gosh, I'm probably leaving out heaps of my favourites here. I, I'm, I also um, uh, I read a bit of fantasy as well and I, I love – Robin Hobbs and uh, George R. R. Martin and Tolkien. So uh, you have quite the coterie of uh, romance writers in Australia. Are there uh, many in Melbourne? Yeah, there's heaps in Melbourne. We have a um, we have a monthly luncheon 
where we go to this fabulous hotel in the city where they have this amazing smorgasbord and um, they um, or we call ourselves the Melbourne mob and um, we um, we all, you know, it sort of depends on who's free and who's not on deadline and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, sometimes, I mean, the Christmas lunch is going to be huge, but uh, <laughs> you know, it, it varies from between six people to, you know, a dozen or whatever. And and we all hang out. So, you know, Marion Lennox and Stephanie Lawrence and Anne Gracie and Fiona Lowe and Joan Kilby. Good gosh. Uh, uh, I think I think we need to go for that lunch. What do you think, Jane? I think <laughs> Kiri, we need to. Arthur, um, I think we need to crash that lunch. How is uh, romance writing received um, as a career for for you in Australia? Is it different than in the U.S.? Oh, I, I how is it received in the U.S.? I, I think with some derision. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's not different. Um, <laughs> I I think the um. The great thing that I have is that I I also wrote I write for a soap opera, which is probably the most derided form of screenwriting as well. Mm. And so I, I have this fantastic double whammy. Um, tonight we went to a um, a pre shoot uh, party for a television series because <clears throat> as I said my husband works <clears throat> in television and. Um, I was I was hoping to be able to brag to you that I met Guy Pearce because he's starring in this thing. And, um, of course, he didn't turn up to the pre-shoot party. <laughs> <laughs> if he was there, I didn't see him, but um, which is probably just as well for both of us. But um, I was talking to the man who's written the script, who's a very accomplished and well-respected Australian screenwriter, and <laughs> he said, oh, so, Sarah, what do you do? And I said, oh, um, I, I write romance novels and he didn't hear me the first time. So I had to say it twice. And, oh, great. And, and I, and I write scripts for neighbors. <laughs> Chris said to me on the way home, um, you know, you looked a little embarrassed. And I said, yeah, um, I guess, I mean, look, I'm, I'm not ashamed of what I do. I'm really proud of what I do. That's why my name is on my books. Um, but I guess there is, you always kind of feel like there is this wall of other people's perceptions and expectations, people who don't understand the genre. I, you know, those articles that you all, we constantly read in the various newspapers and, and whatever about how trashy romance novels are and how they're ruining people's lives and all the other ridiculous kind of things. Um, I, I guess <clears throat> I just, you just get a little bit sick of it. <laughs> and you're sort of ready for the negative comment. Yeah, yeah. Not that anybody, you know, to be honest, nobody's ever said anything to me about writing romance novels. Although some, oh, you know, sometimes you get the, oh, you know, um, so is there really a formula? That's my favourite question. And, um, oh, and then people ask you how much money you make as well, which is also oh. excellent. Um, but more with neighbours, people will, will feel very, very free to slag that off. <laughs> And I do always sort of think, gosh, you know, if somebody came up to me and said that they were a doctor, if I, I would say, oh, God, I hate doctors. I, I, every time I go to the doctor, they always, I always feel like they're pushing something on me that I don't want. Or, you know, imagine, I just wouldn't say that to someone, but people feel quite free to, to criticise things that are in the public domain, like, um, well, like a soap opera, I guess. Yes. Not so much the, the romance writing, I guess. And, of course, the minute you publish a book, um, 
a giant truck, or I believe it's lorry in your part of the world, pulls no, up to truck. the. Oh, it's a truck. <laughs> it's not a lorry. Where's lorries in the in, in I think England? Lorries UK. Yeah. Okay. So a giant truck will pull up to the front of your house and unload a crate of money because that's what happened when you yeah. publish a book. A, a giant pot of money is delivered to your front door every day, right? Yeah. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> that's why I have that sheep station. <laughs> How do you not have a sheep station? I want a sheep station. Although, I, I, it makes me think that the sheep are like pumping gas at the at the gas station. <laughs> I think they'd be. Re- I think a sheep station would be really high maintenance, actually, and kind of smelly. I mean, yeah. sheep don't smell very good. I don't know why there's all these rumors about men and sheep because they just don't smell very good. So you'll start to adopt the accent of who you're listening to. So I'm not alone in that. No, no. If I start speaking with an American accent, I'm not taking the piss out of you. Can you can you imitate Americans? Because I suck at imitating Australia. Um, look, you know, I probably think I can, but I bet I I can't. You know, <laughs> I think I, the Australian accent is really hard to do. I, I there are very very few um, actors that have pulled it off. Even Meryl Streep didn't get it. No, and and it's it's almost like. It's almost like adding an I to every vowel so that there's an I at the end of it. And I still can't do it very well. But we want to hear your American accent and we're recording. From your, uh, a book of yours. Oh. Accent. I, well, I don't have, I I tell you what I've got sitting here. I have um, Lisa Kleypas's Smooth Talking Stranger. Which Which is a book we love. It's an awesome book. It's my comfort read. Um, Is that a book that you reread a lot? Oh, yeah, that and um, Blue-Eyed Devil are just godhead as far as I'm concerned. When I grow up, I want to write like Lisa Kleifers. <gasps> um, Those are okay. not bad books to have as your as your favorites. Okay, so yeah. here's you in an American accent. Bring it. Jack took Luke's carrier from me and carefully locked it onto the base. He paused to murmur. <laughs> See, I've lost it. <laughs> that was pretty good. I don't know. It sounded more like Jersey Shore to me than, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. You a lot of Jersey Shore, Sarah. No, I didn't watch any reality TV at all. I, I just want everyone to know they're from New York. That's all I want everyone <laughs> to know. They are all from New York. <laughs> <laughs> what, do, what do we watch? We watch, um, I watch The Daily Show as much as possible because I am in love with Jon Stewart. I don't know many uh, people who aren't. Yeah, yeah. I have a, my husband is in love with him as well. I think we would have a fight over him actually. Now that's a real Jersey boy right there. <laughs> what other American shows do you get that you watch? Is most of your television is split between American and Australian? Cuz I know that Canada Canadian television stations pay an absolute crap ton of money importing American television shows and have a very smaller segment of their own programming, which is kind of funny considering that Canada is such a huge country. Is that true of Australia as well, or do you get a lot of U.S. programming? Uh, yeah, no, we get a lot of U.S. and, and British, and um, we have um, we have quotas for local content here in Australia, which, thank God, <laughs> <laughs> it, we just wouldn't have any local television production otherwise. I mean, we, um, my understanding, and you know, obviously my husband works in the television industry, when they um, acquire American TV shows, they buy a lot, a lot of shows packaged together so they might get 
um, you know, NCIS and, um, God, I can't even think of the show, Supernatural and Desperate Housewives all packaged together and they, they get a pretty good rate for that. And the production values that you guys have for your television over there because your market is so big, I mean, they're incredibly high. Um, and then you come over to Australia and, um, you know, the idea of you guys spending a million dollars per episode on a television show is... Normal. Yeah, normal. For here, that's just like, dude sell all your kidneys and livers and um <laughs> it's, it's it's crazy putty and um so it's really hard for uh, you know i mean local audiences are always their own worst critics so they're, they're always we're always comparing australian drama with american drama which has these amazing production values and um and you know so and, and, and special effects this, yeah, yeah. So there's this sort of cultural cringe. I think it's getting better. Uh, you know, um, we've had a few television shows in the last few years, particularly that have been um, sort of uniquely Australian, that have have um, I think sort of shared that old sort of cultural cringe factor. So. I've always thought that the production values of all the Wiggle shows that I've watched were extremely high. I always thought that most of Australia was in primary colours. <laughs> My um my husband has a story from when he was working on Neighbours, which is the the soap opera that I still write for. Um, at one point they were advocating with the producer that they needed some new young um hot guys on the show, some teenagers, and so he, the producer went up to Sydney to talk to some casting people or whatever else, and he came back and he said, oh, "I'm really really excited. I've got some you know great news for everybody." And everybody around the story table was going, "Great! Did you get us a hot guy and a hot girl?" And um, and he said, I, I did better than that. I got the wiggles. <laughs> he, he, he got the wiggles. They were on Neighbours. They even drove into Ramsey Street, which is the famous street that Neighbours is filmed right. on. It's actually it's actually a cul-de-sac, but right. I don't know why it's called Ramsey Street. And they um, yeah, they they drove in their funny little wiggle car and their little skivvies and that's brilliant. Yeah. I love so it. How was the rating for that show when you? Oh. Absolutely through the roof, of course. <laughs> so you still write for Neighbours? Yeah, I just handed a script in today. That's so cool. Are the are the episodes available online? Because um, I don't I think don't... we get it here. I don't think we get that in no, the States. No, no they've tried it in America have, a few times. Soaps have really undergone a transformation here in the U.S. and um, they've all been canceled and now they're online. Mm-hmm. They're all downsizing. Oh. Okay, so people can stream them and download them, and mm-hmm. but oh, it's that's interesting. It's a big change. I mean, I think because I've talked to a couple of people about this that they blame um, working mothers and DVRs uh, <laughs> for the decline in soaps. That there just aren't as many people, women particularly, staying at home and watching that type of television. Um, even the stay-at-home moms are super busy and they don't, they're not watching soaps and the athletes that uh, watch soaps aren't sufficient enough in numbers to keep the soaps <laughs> going. Well, have you seen the economy? We're all trying to get some money, not stay at home watching the soap operas. I, I have to confess, I was never a soap opera fan because the minute the two couples, a couple has a happy moment, you know in the next episode one of them's going to get like possessed by Satan or, or a helicopter's <laughs> going to fall on her head or, you know, they're going to be like switched bodies with their evil twin. I mean, something bad's going to happen. There's never a lasting happiness. And if there is, it's just so much 
sex with the L-shaped sheet where it covers her breasts, but it's down around his groin. <laughs> it is. It's a, it's it's like a um falling in love on a soap opera is like t- painting a target on your back. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. You're doomed. Yeah, have you yeah. ever read Have you ever read the book again by uh, Kathleen Gillis Seidel? No. Oh. Oh. Well, I would really be interested in in hearing what you think about it. Um, again, is a, uh, a a book she wrote, and it features a a, a script writer for a soap opera, and the soap opera is kind of, uh, uh, like a historical soap opera, kind of like Northanger Abbey, maybe. Yeah. Or, uh, not Northanger, but Dow- is it Duntown Abbey? Downton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Downton Abbey. It's kind of like that. I, although I don't watch Downton Abbey for the same reason Sarah doesn't watch soaps. I, you know, I'm a romance reader and I want the love and happy ever after. And you just don't get that from that. But she writes for historical um, soap opera. And I've always been impressed with Kathleen Gillis' Seidel's ability to kind of capture the essence of the character in which she's writing. And in and, and the... Uh, the soap opera is really well depicted, and it seems like Kathleen Gill Seidel knows uh, all about uh, screenwriting or um, soap writing. Like, she was a soap writer at one time. She's not, but that's kind of the feel that I got. No, no, I, I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can find it. That, yeah, that would be interesting. Because <laughs> so, I think, I mean, look, it's a little bit different down here in Australia. The, the neighbors. Um, story method is quite unique and that it's actually a, a story structure that they've um they've sold around the world as a way of making uh economically churning out lots of because like neighbors does five half hours a week so it's a really high output in terms of you know both shooting schedule as well as plotting and writing so um so they have this this structure where they have a story team um and storyliners and a story editor and they all sit around coming up with what I kind of refer to as, um, I mean, they're called storylines, but I think of them as being like the book of the movie, if you will. And then those um, individual storylines for each episode are then farmed out to freelance script writers, which is what I do now. And then they come back in-house and are edited to obviously get that continuity across the, the episodes. And that was such an efficient way of making television that they exported that to the UK and all through Europe and and that's a bit different to the way America does it. So how did you fall into script writing for the soap opera? Um uh nepotism, frankly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's always a good way. Yeah, yeah. Um my my now husband and I went we did the same writing degree. And um, he was much more interested in writing uh, screen script, screenplays, and he um, really pursued a career writing and um, ended up getting a job on Neighbours. And while he was doing that, I was working in publishing um, a magazine and a trade magazine and he used to come home and we'd obviously talk about what they were doing around the story table and I would always give him ideas to take him to work and he would always say to me, oh, you, you're actually really good at this, you know, you should do this. And and I was always in the back of my mind thinking, because he made it sound like such fun and it is a lot of fun to sit around a table with a bunch of other writers and make fart jokes all day. And um, <laughs> he, he, but I never wanted to work with him. So I didn't actually try out for a job on Neighbours until Chris had pretty much, 
you know, had it was was full to pussy's bow, if you will, with so he was full, um, wait, hold on, full to pussy's bow. <laughs> Is that not a saying that you guys have? <laughs> I've never heard that. What the hell does that mean? It's brilliant. It actually usually means that you've eaten too much. What's you know, a like, pussy's like the the bow around a cat's neck? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my god, I'm using that every day. <laughs> my neighbor uses it all the time. So he he arranged for me to have um a week's trial and um yeah and I and I was I was I'm it sounds so egotistical to say this but I was good at it <laughs> and they offered me a job pretty much on the second day I think so that was very cool and good fun two years two of the most fun years of my life wow oh, so you've only been doing it for two years oh no that I, that was ages ago that was um two uh, two thousand I think I did I did two years in house okay. and then. I, we moved to New Zealand and I did a year on a soap opera over there as well. And then I got published and I, I went freelance. Do you miss the uh, interaction with the other writers? Oh, yes. It's enormously good fun. It's just because, I mean, you know, writer, writing is solitary. It's just you and the computer. And um, I think it's why there's so many writers on Twitter and <laughs> various other social media where we're all talking to each other because you it is, it is it can be very very lonely and isolating and being able to sit around a table with a bunch of other writers and have this sort of shared creation experience again it's not really something that you you have as a novelist because um I mean it's one of the things I like about being a novelist is that you're in charge of everything but there is something um incredibly dynamic and energizing about working collaboratively with other writers as well and it's it's also really humbling and it taught me an enormous amount about both myself and just story and 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 that even though you can be really wedded to something there's always a different way of telling a story and sometimes it's just a different way there is no wrong or right and I always try and keep those lessons in mind when I'm both editing my own work and when I'm getting revision notes and things like that, I'm all, I always try and stay open to the possibilities because, you know, sometimes there is a bit of way out there. So do you use a critique partner or do you, here's one of my concerns because you, you say, and that's not about you, it's just about writing in general. Um, and maybe this leads to kind of the inauthentic, inauthenticity I see in some writers, particularly when they're trying to represent professional women. <laughs> And and that is um, because you're so isolated. Um, do you, do you feel like perhaps your uh, connection to maybe you know the world outside isn't as strong, and and so you have trouble writing, you know, relatable characters? I mean, I'm not saying that about you because I think your writing is very relatable. But do you ever struggle with that because your writing, because your career is so solitary, so isolated? Um, look, I don't. I, I understand what you're saying. Um, I I've never had that particular problem. Um, I do. I do. I I have read books though, where um, particularly for some reason, boss and secretary books where it was so obvious to me that the writer had never been in an office <laughs> had didn't understand how um you know admin staff worked any of that sort of stuff and i mean so i think for possibly there are some writers who have let's just say got married had kids and then started writing and maybe they haven't had a career outside of the home or 
they've had a limited experience outside of the home. I mean, I didn't go freelance until I was um, in my in my thirties, so I've I've had a, a, a life out there, and I still you know I still go in house and work with other people and various other things. Like, so I, I get around. <laughs> <laughs> that from now on we can only have um, guest authors with accents because it's not any fun to have it without. No, we absolutely have to have um, all the authors with accents. Or, or if you have people from North America, then they have to speak with an accent. Yes. Even a full Ex- one. Yeah. yeah, like a pirate or something. <laughs> or... Oh, who can we get to do a pirate accent? So that's it for this installment of the podcast, a nice extra long version, which we like in romance. Many, 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 many thanks to Sarah Mayberry, who stayed up until about 1.30 her time in the morning to talk to us. And thank you to you for listening. If you have any suggestions or if you know of an author who would be willing to talk like a pirate while we interview her, you can email us at sbjpodcast, that's S for Sarah, B for bitches, J for Jane, podcast at gmail.com. And future podcasts will absolutely involve author interviews because, hey, if we can call Australia in the middle of the night and reconnect three or four times, we can absolutely call someone a little bit more local to both of us. If you're enjoying the music this week, it is, as usual, provided by Sassy Outwater. This is from an album she produced. This is Jason Hemmons, and you can find him online at jasonhemmons.com. That's J-A-S-O-N-H-E-M-M. ENS.com. I'll have links on my site, and Dear Author will also have links to his stuff. This track is called Forgotten, which I picked because I didn't want you to think we'd forgotten all about the podcast, because believe me, we hadn't. I also have original music from other artists for future podcasts, so it should be very cool. And thank you to Sassy Outwater for giving us the awesome music. I love that we feature new music with every podcast. I think it's so cool, especially because I get to listen to all this cool stuff before we add it to the to the vocal part of the podcast. So that's it for this week. This is a very long podcast, so I'm going to stop talking now and let the Mr. Hemmons finish out the podcast music. As usual, we wish you the very best of reading, and thank you for joining us. Bye.